Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. I want to just welcome everybody to this presentation today. December 21st is the 50th anniversary of Nixon's war on cancer. Nixon had three wars. He had the Vietnam War, the war on drugs, and the war on cancer. And I wouldn't say that any of those three went particularly well. And um, I met Azra almost two years ago. And my very good friend and mentor, James Shapiro, said, you have to read this book called The First Cell. And so I read it and I managed to get her on my podcast, which I felt was very fortunate because she's not just any author. She's been in major public Wall Street Journal and all kinds of very high level stuff. So, you know, getting a person like that onto a podcast, not always the easiest thing, but she graciously agreed. And basically my biggest question was, so how did you get away with writing this book? And rather than telling you the answer, I'll let the answer unfold as we go on here. But Azra is an oncologist in New York City. She's at Columbia University. She has been treating leukemia patients for well over 30 years. She has also collected the largest private repository of tissue samples of her leukemia patients, something like, is it 30,000? 60, 60, yeah, off by a factor of two. Uh, 60,000 tissue samples which she collected at her own expense. Eventually she was doing fundraisers in New York city to pay for the, and she has all of their medical records. And now that data is being processed after many years of just sitting there as a lifelong dream for her to get that going. And she's a member of our cancer and evolution working group for the American association of cancer research. She's one of the founding members and impeccable credentials published in all the journals, but she has never bowed to the system. She has been in it, but not of it. And I love having conversations with her. And she not only understands the technical stuff and is able to write papers and talk about genome sequencing and proteomics and all these kinds of technical things. She cares about human beings. She understands that every single patient that comes to her is a human with a family and relatives and hopes and dreams, and she respects them as human beings. And so I want to introduce you to Azra, and you can spend the next 45 minutes or so discovering her world and hearing her perspective on something that 
all, it touches all of us. My dad died of cancer. My mom had cancer. I had relatives die of cancer. I had a, a good friend die of cancer about a month ago. He was two years younger than me. He was a very close friend of my brother. His name was Mark. So this affects all of us. And Azra, I'm just delighted to have you here. It's an honor. Welcome to Planet Perry. And you've got a whole bunch of people live on the line here, eager to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much, Perry. And uh, delighted to be here once again with you. You are my best interlocutor. So, Azra, tell us, you need to give people a little background. You're, you've been touched by cancer, too. Your husband. Tell us about your husband. That's a whole story. Where did you meet him and and what does this have to do with the effort to cure cancer? (laughs) Okay, well, first of all, I want to say to you, Perry, that I woke up feeling extremely depressed today because it is 21st December and exactly 50 years ago that uh, President Nixon declared a war on cancer. And I feel that... uh, You know, uh, since 1977, when I landed in this country and started treating patients with acute myeloid leukemia, today, 50 years later, I'm doing the exact same things, the exact same drugs I'm using. And that makes me ashamed to face my patient. It makes me embarrassed. First thing after I uh, got up and had some tea, I got a call from clinic saying one of my patients, who's a woman in her early 70s, uh, had pre-leukemia, developed acute leukemia, has now developed a severe urinary tract infection, and, and we are unable to treat her leukemia. So now we have to chase around trying to treat her infection when she's dying of leukemia, but we are putting these band-aids constantly on things and just not able to address the, uh, and it brought home the entire cycle of uh, high hopes, crushing disappointments over the last 50 years that I've been experiencing. Just the one patient call makes you realize how badly are we failing this war. And I'll come to tell you about my husband in a moment, but to me, the most important thing about President Nixon's message that has been completely misunderstood was that in his 100 words that he used to declare the war on cancer, which he never used these terms of war or declaration or anything, what he said was that we will eliminate cancer by 1976. Well, 1976 came, Nixon was no more, cancer was doing its own thing and being cancer still. And it's now 2021, 50 years later, and it's still the mortality rate for people who have advanced cancer has really not moved at all. The mortality rate today is the same as it was in 1930. And the only gains we have made is just by anti-smoking campaigns and early detection for sure. And uh, um, some cancers have benefited like lymphomas and lymphoid leukemias, chronic myeloid leukemia, acute promyelocytic leukemia, testicular cancers, but myeloma and a few patients with lung cancer. But those constitute like less than 10% of all cancers. So for the 90%, the story is not as 
glorious. Plus, what we are using in terms of treatment to cure people has not improved either. The same slash poison burn, in my opinion, treatments that belong to the Paleolithic Stone Age era. Why are we congratulating ourselves and patting each other on the back that we are curing this or that uh, 68% cancer? But what are we curing with? Why haven't we done better? These are the things that are on my 3 a.m. agenda every day. But Nixon didn't say, President Nixon did not say that we will understand cancer. He mm. said we will eliminate cancer. And mm. there is a big semantic difference in the two, but there's a real difference between the two. Eliminate means it can take us a thousand years to understand. We didn't understand how malaria is being cured. Somebody went and who was sick with malaria licked the bark of the Sincona tree and got cured and quinine came into existence. We still don't know exactly how it works, but we are curing malaria. So the point is that if we try to keep understanding every intracellular signaling pathway inside one cell, which contains a trillion molecules, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But our hubris, our arrogance is such that we think we can understand and reverse. No, my point is let's try to catch cancer early and just get rid of it. Yes, we need to understand how to attack it, but that's for elimination not for trying to understand how cancer is working its way. So those are my opening salvos for you for the 50th anniversary, which is today, which is really a horrific day for me. Now, it's always important to mollycoddle people and, uh, you know, whether it's researchers or it's uh, families of cancer patients, but how, I think it's profoundly unfair to the cancer patient themselves who have to face this grueling, crushing dis disease on their own. There is nothing heroic in throwing up continuously from chemotherapy or having the most severe headaches from uh, and projectile vomiting from having a glioblastoma multiforme. So, so I think somehow the positive rhetoric, the promotion of the anecdote which was successful has overtaken our senses. We want to appear as if we are, you know, winning everything and everything is hunky-dory and I don't want to be negative about everything, but I do think that unless we understand the past, we can't plan the future. Unless we really take stock of where we are today, we can't move properly for tomorrow. And where we are today is what I just summarized for you. And so going forward, we need to change strategies. That's clear to me. And the, the about turn I'm talking about is we have spent 50 years in trying to understand cancer and trying to then kill the last cancer cell. I'm saying forget understanding, find the first cell which we can do now and then just uh, develop the technology to eliminate it and try to divert resources from what we are doing now to what we should be doing in the future. Well, there's a couple of things that occur to me. One is that the easiest way, because I'm a technical person, and the easiest way to distract yourself from the pain and the trauma and the embarrassment of not being able to save a patient is to just 
or else we're just going to go deeper into the science, right? A person can just sort of wall that off. And then from a systemic point of view, I mean, I'm a marketing guy, so I get it. You can always, you can always make a pitch that this next rock that you are about to turn over is the rock where we're going to find the secret. And you can re-spin that sales pitch over and over. And in fact, that was one of your first rants to me. It was like, they just, they just keep giving the same sales pitch year after year after year. They just replace, they do a Microsoft Word find and replace. And they replace proteomics with metabolomics. And then, and then, and then we're off to the next fad, right? Yes. And so here we are. Yes. So I think you asked me a very good question about my husband. And this brings me to give a little background, as you said, which is that number one, I see 30 to 40 cancer patients every week. Number two, I supervise a cutting edge research lab at Columbia University. And three, I'm a cancer widow. So there are all kinds of angles and aspects of cancer that I have experienced that Honestly, I wouldn't wish on an enemy at times. I came to this country as a 24-year-old uh, from a very temperate climate of Karachi and landed smack in the middle of the blizzard of 1977 in Buffalo, New York, where four of my siblings and spouses, their spouses were doing residencies in medicine, surgery, pediatrics, gynecology. We had all fields covered. And of course, being the person that I am, as soon as the drama of the blizzard settled a couple, in a couple of weeks, I walked into Roswell Park Cancer Institute, uh, where my sister had done a rotation already and was well known in the pediatric oncology department. And do you know, Perry, the first thing I saw as I walked in as a 24-year-old, it remains etched on my stone. In the front entrance wall, of the lobby of Roswell Park Cancer Institute, there is a quotation by its former director, Dr. James Grace. And it says something like this. If I had a choice between a walk on the moon and saving one life from cancer, I would never look at the moon again. Wow. And do you know that as a 24-year-old, looking at that, two things affected me deeply. The first was that, of course, the obvious thing, I had come to America to cure cancer. And I felt, wow, you know, what a beautiful thing to say. This is exactly the motivation I have. But the second thing that affected me very much right then and there was, oh my God, I'm in a country now that can afford to dream this big, mm. to dream of things like curing cancer, to dream of walking on the moon. I mean, this to me was just so beautiful, so uplifting. I felt a thrill going through my body that I've landed in the right country. I've landed in the right place because it's citizens, it's ordinary citizens, like a director of a cancer institute can say something like this. I was deeply happy. And I have to say that despite all the disappointments, I have always felt so blessed by being in America. Because think of it, a chit of a brown female like me can arrive from a foreign country and compete with 
the you know six foot tall uh, blonde blue eyed men who have the right pedigrees who've gone through all the Ivy League institutions who have the right uh, you know, old boys networks, all the connections you can think of. And yet I can compete with them for grants. And if mine is good enough, I get it. <laughs> I get the grant. So the system I have learned is, why should I fight with all the systems? No. Under the British and the subcontinent, we learned that if you can't fight them, join them is a much better technology. So I join the system, I work within the system, but I don't have to give in to the system. I continue to maintain my own voice and it can only happen in America that when people see the sincerity with which I'm doing things and the merit of the science I'm proposing, that I do get the support I need. Right now, even I can stand and say all these things to criticize what is happening in the war on cancer. And yet the entire leadership of Columbia University is behind me. They support me fully. They have attended every book uh, opening that I had from the dean of the medical school to the chair of the department of medicine to the cancer center director to the head of hematology oncology they were all come and supported me and said to me in fact i uh, launched and through the gauntlet basically when i arrived at columbia university by giving grand rounds where everybody was there where i said exactly this that we really need to take stock of how badly we are losing and do better by our future patients by really strategizing a little differently. And I was certainly not um, a wilting lily in this, in my attacks on, uh, you know, on the establishment in front of them. And afterwards, the division director, Gary Schwartz, walked up to me and said he had tears in his eyes because I told the story of young Andrew at the end, who died at 22, my daughter's best friend of a horrible brain tumor. And Gary said to me, Asra, you used to be our scientific leader. Now you are our spiritual leader also. So I must say that I have continued to work within the system. And I and the reason I do it, Perry, is very simple. And I'll shut up after this. The reason I do it is because I see that every colleague I have is sincere in what they're trying to do. It is not any individual's fault. I have been in this country 43 years. I've never met an oncologist who didn't want to do the best they could for their patients. So I haven't met cancer researchers who want not to help patients. For God's sake, all of us are very sincere. But 95% but people today, researchers in cancer, believe that cancer is a genetic disease caused by genetic mutations or genes malfunctioning. 95%. Well, my, I say this, if I put 95% resources instead of genetics into snake oil, then everyone will think that cancer is caused by snake oil. It's the money trail. And if someone's salary depends on bringing a grant, they will have to do what they think is the best thing that 
that will assure them a, a positive outcome. So the system we have created, while individuals are all sincere and excellent in what they're doing, but it's just not helping. That's the problem. Yeah. So you met this guy named Harvey. <laughs> yes. At 24, I met him and I realized suddenly that all my life, since I was a teenager and I had been obsessed with the concept of cancer, the very idea that there is a cell within our own body that has found and unlocked the key to immortality, that within us is a cell that becomes a new species. We give birth to a cancer cell, which then follows its own evolutionary pathways, it goes off uh, into a speciation path of its own, completely neglecting the host that gave birth to it, even killing the host at its own expense. And this fascinated me because I felt that if we could only unlock the key to cancer, then we will unlock its secret to immortality and uh, we will find the secret to aging. So we could kill two birds in one stone, cancer and aging both by studying cancer. This was really my great motivation intellectually since I was a teenager, reading about all this all the time. But then when I went to med school and started seeing patients, my motivation became more of an emotional one as well. Because you can't, you can't help but be totally invested in cancer patients. So now I had an emotional and an intellectual grip. But I didn't find people who were as obsessed as I was until I met Harvey. He was 36, married with three children, and I was 24. I had just arrived in America with grand dreams of curing cancer. And one look was all it took, literally. But it was because of the intellectual seduction, I would say. And we started a conversation that continued till basically until he eventually died. Also, he was just recovering from a cancer he had had at 34 years of age. Mm. He had a terrible testicular cancer, extremely malignant. So he was just recovering from that. And so uh, it took us another eight years to get together. But uh, we knew that we had a connection, which began with an intellectual connection. And I could talk to him about curing cancer, in, you know, in, in just these kinds of terms, even then. And under his guidance, he was my mentor. I very quickly decided within uh, five or so years that in my lifetime, acute leukemia will not be cured. And so I turned my attention to studying pre-leukemia and following these patients. And how he used to make fun of me, he used to say, nobody can even pronounce this word myelodysplastic syndrome. No one's going to give you any grants. But now you know how much I listen to him, Perry. And so, <laughs> and that's how we met. And that's how we became a team back in 1977. And throughout my residency, which was in Washington area, I kept coming back to continue my research with him. And as soon as I finished my residency in internal medicine, I was back to a fellowship with him and then stayed on for 10 years with him at, at Roswell Park and did all my original uh, work in trying to understand pre-leukemias with him there. Although he was not at all interested in pre-leukemia, he continued to work in acute myeloid leukemia. And that's how we formed a team, um, Perry. So 
you built this and then later in life the cancer came back yes for him no not came back he developed a second cancer oh, this okay. is one of the main issues uh, with the cancer survivors we have fortunately about 16 million cancer survivors in the country right now and it will reach a number of 20 million very soon by 2030 i believe these cancer survivors and i don't want anyone to get anxious on this audience but there is a slightly increased chance of a second cancer for individuals the chance is slightly increased okay but if you look at the statistics and see who are the newly diagnosed cancer patients in america we diagnose 1.8 million new cancer cases every year 20% of them one in five arises in a cancer survivor and this is where i think we have the best chance of grabbing the first cell because if we start monitoring the cancer survivors by simply studying non invasively urine feces saliva hair nails and a few cc's of blood if twice a year cancer survivors can give us that we can bank them and then within the first year of doing this along with my colleagues that i have collected together from johns hopkins university harvard md anderson university of chicago northwestern these are major institutions who have committed to working with me on this uh, cancer survivors project within us we will collect 16000 samples within the first year and there will be 500 of those subjects who will develop a second cancer within the first year and by the end of 3 years we'll have 50000 samples and 2 i mean 50000 cancer survivors and 2000 will have developed a second cancer like harvey harvey's first cancer was a testicular tumor second one was uh, leukemia completely unrelated mm. so the point is that if we can monitor these cancer survivors then within the first year we'll have 500 patients on whom we had saved the samples who developed cancer so now imagine studying that first cell or not trying to understand every which way it's trying to become cancerous but simply finding a way to get rid of it and very simple things can be done to get rid of it for example when these first cells arise you can look at and you can identify the tissue of origin it's coming from so let's say we find a cell in the blood and we say this person looks like they have cancer well where is the cancer we can do a pet scan and see if there is an early tumor but if it's too small to appear yet at least we know where to start scanning we can just do an ultrasound or something non invasive every month on these individuals right now but the coming techniques are that we would be able to hone in very quickly on where the organ is and even within the first few million cells that collect together they have to start making new blood vessels so the area becomes hot it can be picked up very easily a hot area once we know that it's so small that's when we can target it with things like directed laser beams and stuff 
But I'm saying that we can even do better, but find unique markers for this first cell, which we think we are on the, on the track of doing it very quickly. And just follow Nixon's words, eliminate cancer. Mm. So I'd like to you to just back up a step because I don't think mo- uh, a lot of people listening are completely familiar with the concept of a first cell. And you have a model of what you believe is going on here. Uh, so just can you expand on what you're saying a yes. little bit and, and walk us through that? Thank you, Perry. Uh, yes, very much uh, love to do that. So uh, for everybody who may not be as obsessed with the question of cancer, here's what I think happens. Cancer starts in one cell. I call it the first cell. But my thesis is that the first cell doesn't arise out of nowhere. It just doesn't. What happens is that let's say somebody gets a hepatitis B virus infection of the liver. Now in the liver, the virus starts killing off lots of cells. Cells arrive from the blood to try and contain this infection. An area of inflammation develops. It becomes like a battleground where the virus is killing the cells. The cells are under pressure. These inflammatory cells are arriving. The liver cells are being given the signal of fight or flight. Either you are going to develop a new strategy to survive or you're going to die. And in this situation, one cell develops such a strategy. And my hypothesis is that the way this happens is it's too difficult to re-engineer one cell survival strategy. So what it does is it simply fuses with a blood cell. So a stressed liver cell will now fuse with a blood cell. If it gets inside a blood cell, it gains two things immediately. One is that now the immune cells cannot recognize it as something stressed and dying to be killed. Rather, it's wrapped inside a healthy blood cell, so it's ignored by the immune system, so it can evade completely. Mm-hmm. And, and the second is, it can travel all over the body now. It has an all-access security pass. Yes. Anywhere at once. Anywhere. Because remember, the architecture, the integrity of our body is maintained by liver cells staying in the liver. They don't walk out of the liver and land in the lung normally. Pancreatic cells have to stay in the pancreas. Ovary has to stay. But in cancer, they learn how to walk. They become mobile. And instead of re-engineering themselves to be mobile, they co-opt another cell to become mobile. Which is an evolutionary event. It's a symbiotic merger, right? So the beginning of cancer is an evolutionary, purposeful event. That's why Evolution 2.0 is doing this. It's like, whoa. Now, can you explain immortality? Yes. So this is a very important question. Um, First of all, what you said about this being an evolutionary event is so true because Clearly, Lynn Margolis, the late Lynn Margolis, who had proposed that all of multicellular organisms arose because two unicellular organisms somehow uh, cooperated and fused together. And Mm -hmm. her hypothesis was that mitochondria in our cells 
are used to be an independently living organism once. And she was dissed for this forever. But once uh, her theory was accepted, then we, Ernst Mayer called it simply the most revolutionary step in life and in biology that has ever occurred is because of cooperation of two cells. I'm saying that within our body, cancer arises because of cooperation of two cells, a stressed dying tissue cell from liver or pancreas joins with a blood cell. And then it develops, as you said, an easy pass to go through everywhere in the body and evade the immune system. But basically what I'm saying is that it somehow they re-engineer the DNA to become immortalized, which means that all this cell does is it can, in, it can now evade any growth inhibitory signals. And simply its purpose is to just continue to double its DNA and divide, double its DNA and divide. It doesn't, uh, so it ignores the inhibitory signals of the, cell, uh, uh, of the body and it can walk out of the organ in which it was living. How it becomes immortal, how does it stop having any function except continuous doubling of its DNA? Um, it's some kind of uh, survival pressure that makes it do it. But no other life form in the world has gotten this except cancer cells. Now, to me, kind of uh, an event means that the real problem is not this cell, that in the future, what we have to do is to stop the stress which caused the appearance of this cell. So how do we find that stress? This is the beauty of what we are doing, uh, Perry, with the Cancer Survivor Center, that basically stress signals, inflammatory signals from anywhere in the body are shed into the blood. So we can pick up metabolites, we can pick up proteomic signatures, we can pick up glycans that are being uh, produced and shed into the system and find that, okay, there is somewhere an inflammation going on that can lead to a development of the first cell. How do we deal with it? Anti-inflammatory treatments, trying to take away that stress for whatever, whether it was infection, exposure to toxins, autoimmune things causing havoc in an organ. All of these need to be, will be the solution in the future of cancer treatment rather than trying to kill even the first cell. This is where I think we will go. So just... To, an analogy might be, it's sort of like your project is taking enough data to capture a window of time in a refugee camp at which a very disgruntled, stressed out refugee finally decides to join a terrorist organization, kill a soldier and take his uniform and gun. And then go out and look like, or, or, you know, it's like a little bit like that, right? And what the Cancer Survivor Center wants to do is isolate, can we catch the first cell red-handed 
and then look at what were the stressors that caused that thing to flip out, right? Perfectly stated. I couldn't have been so eloquent. I wasn't, but you were. Thank you. You got and it exactly right. He's not killing the soldier. He's actually merging with it. It's like a science fiction movie where, you know, where one creature merges with another, and then all of a sudden, like, here we come, right? And then he's got an all-access pass. He's like, hey, I'm a soldier. Yeah, okay, you can come in, right? And then he goes and he spreads his terrorism all over the place. And then, like, you got cancer in three different places, and, and it's a runaway train. And then back to the original point, early detection, like, your work is trying to find the pinnacle of early detection, like the exact moment. Because if we can understand that, that's it's going to be so much easier than fighting a thousand species of metastasized cells that are all over your body and you're in stage four and we're slash, poison, burn, wrong, wrong time to solve the problem, wrong approach. Azra, is it, am I correct? You have a hard stop at the top of the hour. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So I mean, this is what we're doing. Evo2.org slash cancer. We're trying to raise $2 million by the end of April. We're at 300,000. We're working as hard as we can to do that. We need, you know, some of you know, some of you are rich people. Some of you know rich people. Some of you can give $100 a month. Whatever it is, we need your help. Can you take some questions? I, I have several. Yeah, have, sure. Okay, so first of all, there's a couple of raised hands. Louis, in the 1930s, Otto Warburg proposed cancer cells have a disruptive form of metabolism, only able to produce energy using glucose, concluded that by removing sugar from the cancer patient's diet, he could starve the cancer cells. What's your opinion? Yeah, I know Otto Warburg's work very well, and... Uh... All kinds of ketogenic diets have been tried, but it's not the body that needs to have a ketogenic diet. It's the cell that needs to have a starvation problem. And that we haven't figured out. I don't think that ketogenic diets will help. Idris says, I wonder if you think what we eat has any effect on if we get cancer or not. Is it true that we should limit sugar, salt, fat? It's true that we should limit all those things. I think it's a kind of sugar alcohol, gluten, and uh, dairy should be reduced. But I would say that I just read a beautiful book, by the way, called uh, uh, Radical Remissions by Kelly Turner. It's a beautiful book. And it has a lot of advice about nutrition for uh, how to avoid cancer. And even if you have cancer, how to eat well. So I would say you can um, definitely use common sense, but there is no such thing as a diet that can help you avoid cancer. People having the most pristine exercise habits and diet, uh, dietary lifestyles still can get cancer. So I don't want to overstate it, but I want to say that these are very important things to remain healthy. Mike says, how does cancer research take into account environmental toxicity, including electromagnetic field, magnetic fields? I mean, everyone suspects that these things cause cancer, and there is uh, some evidence also that nobody knows. Only future research will show us. 
how will uh, limiting these things help the fight for cancer? I'm not sure. I think early detection is the only way that if we can develop the means to constantly monitor the human body as a machine 24-7 by implanting devices under the skin, for example, and measuring the inflammatory signals and acting very quickly to take care of those, that kind of thing will bear fruit faster than trying to prove that 5G or 6G is causing cancer because there are too many variables involved. Of course, these studies should be done. I'm not saying it shouldn't be, but I'm saying I'm a cancer researcher and I'm saying those things will have very little effect on doing much for cancer mortality until a long time into the future. Teresa asks, what will be done with the 2 million? And I would like to answer, and then I would like you to answer. So we have four projects going on that Evolution Science Research 2.0 is working on. So we have Michael Levin at Tufts University, and he is inducing cancer in amphibians at will, and then reversing cancer at will. And he is doing this using a very different understanding of biology than what is traditional. And like Azra, he is convinced that genetics is not the answer. Currently, the world is obsessed with genetics and uh, very, very powerful research that he is doing. Second project we've got going on is we have Eric Kulker and Kim Bussey studying the effects of cortisol on cancer which as I understand has never been properly done. Cortisol is a stress hormone, like it's almost a household word. I don't know how it's possible that this hasn't been properly researched, but we're working on that. The third project, which is being funded by a donor is Azra educating fellows who are in cancer research about her view of cancer. So that's like a marketing project they're working on. And then And then the fourth one, Azra, tell them about the first cell project and what you want to do with that. Thank you so much, Perry. I'm a big fan of uh, Michael Levin, by the way, and have many Zoom calls with him. Um, I can't, and you introduced us. And, uh, you know, I mean, his, his whole concept of electrical signals involved in so much of biology is uh, just a fabulous thing to fund. Thank you. And Kevin, uh, Kim Bussey's work, of course, outstanding also. So you have amazing projects. I fully support them. Uh, As far as my project is concerned, the first cell, uh, what we would like to do with the funding that we receive is we are just collecting samples right now. That I will collect. But now let's say I have all these 500 patients and I have the samples on them. What I'd like to do is go into the samples and ask very specific questions about the patients whose cells we detected. So a retrospective uh, analysis to then come up with, uh, once we uh, find anything, for example, just some disturbance in metabolomics, for example, then the beauty is that I have, 60,000 samples sitting in my tissue repository to go back and simply confirm with that small targeted thing. I don't have to do 
$25,000 of metabolomics on every patient. Rather, it will cost 25 cents now because it will be just one out of 50,000 proteins I have to look at. You know what I'm saying, Perry? So what we want the money for and in how it will be used will be to study the samples of people who develop cancer, but just from before they develop cancer and find and develop that multifaceted. I'm not going to be happy with just finding one signature, but no, what was the proteomics, the genomics, the transcriptomics, the metabolomics, all of these in the plasma, in the saliva, in the urine, in the feces, in tears, in hair and nails, everywhere we look and see which yields or all of them together yield the most reliable way of detecting cancer early and saving lives from cancer through prevention. And that means taking care of also the stress that caused the appearance of the first cell. And you know what? I have very few tomorrows left compared to yesterday's. I'm an old hag. So I don't want to make five and 10-year plans. I want to make a two-year plan. If in the first year I have 500 samples and you give me the money by the second year, I assure you I will have something to show you. And Perry is going to call me here, I know, and play this little clip and say, okay, now be answerable. And I would love that. That's how I'll spend the money. So if I might push my analogy a little further, you are taking snapshots of, okay, I've, I've got these tissue samples from these people. I got these 500 people that did get cancer again. And I, I'm going to slow the film strip down and I'm going to go into that refugee camp and I'm going to figure out, guess what? Three fourths of the soldiers that defected and merged, you know, the, the rebels that merged with a soldier and stole their guns and went out and started creating mayhem. Three-fourths of the time, somebody killed either their brother or their sister, and they got angry, and they sent a nasty email to somebody, and we are, we are going to, oh, there's the brother, there's the sister. We're going to send somebody from the Peace Corps to go talk to this person. We're going to measure all the little chemical and electrical signals that were going on just before that happened. Yeah. And right at the point where the guy merges and takes the guy's gun, we're just going to go in at night. We're going to inject him with a sleeping pill and we're going to carry him safely out. We're going to put him in an ambulance with an siren, and he's just going to disappear. And the cancer is not going to happen. And we're going to prevent it. Like we're going to nip it in the bud with a laser or with, like, and, and then we're going to figure out what were the stressors should like, you need to go meditate. You need to forgive your ex-husband. You need to get out of your toxic job. You need to get a toxic person out of your life. And then your stress will go away. And then you won't have, can I mean, Azra, is this kind of the idea? Yes. Azra, how much money are you asking for to do this project? I mean, I think, uh, I would ask for a million dollars a year for three years at the go. minimum. So what were you going to do with $2 million? There you go. And see, if you read our fundraising letter, there's 580-20s of cancer research, and I don't have time to go into them now, but every single one of them eliminates 
80 to 90% of the research that's being done. And when you've eliminated 80 or 90% five times, including eliminating all the people that didn't even define cancer correctly in the first place because they think it's a genetic disease when it's really an evolutionary event, that is a response to stress. And that there are systems that we can detect. What are the triggers that turn on the evolutionary machinery? That's what we want to know. So you can go to evo2.org slash cancer. You can call John Corral. We'll make sure we send out an email. It's got his phone number. He's the CEO of Science Research 2.0. I know these researchers. I know what they're doing. I understand them. They understand me. This is an evolutionary phenomenon. We are at the bottom of the swamp, and it's time to kill Grendel's mother. So, Azra? Yes. This is a delight. I always look, love talking to you. It's such a pleasure. We got to go. Ozra's got an appointment. Thank you, everybody. If you email support at perrymarshall.com with any questions, we'll get back to you. And uh, again, Ozra, always a pleasure. And on the 50th anniversary, be hopeful because we got good people working on this thing. So thank you. Thank you, Perry. And the last thing I want to say is that, look, I don't want to be alone in this area. I have built consensus around me and whatever money you give will not just be for me. It will be me and the universities that I just quoted, MD Anderson and Harvard and Hopkins and University of Chicago and Northwestern and Einstein, Montefiore here, City of Hope, Joplin, Missouri. So it will be given to a group of researchers and And you know that the credibility of all these institutions will be on the line. If you give us money for three years after the first year, if you don't see the kind of uh, answers you were looking for, then you have every right not to give us the second year's funding. But I assure you that not one single penny will be misspent. And Perry, thank you for having me on on this particular day because I woke up feeling extremely depressed, embarrassed, ashamed of myself, and really quite despondent, but talking to you always helps. And I hope the good people in this audience today will see the kind of uh, objective things we are trying to do with cancer with a consensus behind me and with 50,000 subjects who are cancer survivors coming in to donate their samples. I hope this will inspire all of you to think of those words of uh, Dr. Grace, if I had a choice between a walk on the moon and saving one life from cancer, then I would never look at the moon again. Thank you, Azra. Thank you, everybody. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.